um, the truth of God's Word. I'm thankful for the, the, the fact that it's forever settled in heaven. And then we can count upon the Lord. And we can call upon the Lord. And, uh, and rest in His Word. Amen? And so, that's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to open up the Word of God. We're going to begin to study in Hebrews chapter 12. It's been so long, you might have forgotten where we were. But Hebrews chapter 12, and it's amazing since we started church, we've been in Hebrews, amen? I think the Lord wants us to get it. Uh, and we talked a couple of weeks ago when we did meet and, and studied this last. It was The, the topic was basically, uh, if you look at verse 7, it says, if you endure chastening, God deals with you as sons. Hebrews 12, 7. For what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? And you go on down to verse 10. For they verily, speaking about our earthly fathers, for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure. He, for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. So when the Lord's chasing us, it's a good thing. When he's chastening us, it's a good thing because he's not just beating us senseless. He's not just being cruel. He's not just the way we might think of an abusive father or abusive parent who's just taking out some anger on their child. The Lord is always doing, it says right here, for our profit. It's for our profit. So even in our, our chastening, He's doing that for our good. That specifically, we might be, at the end of verse 10, partakers of His holiness. That means a partner, an associate of the Lord's holiness. No, now, no chastening for the present. We can all say amen to this. Seems to be joyous. The time you're being chastened, there's nothing fun about it. Okay, when you're a little kid and got chastened, me and Chris were talking about crazy things we did, uh, you know, with fireworks as a, as a kid. And the, thing, the times that I got punished for things that I did, you kind of wonder how your brain worked at, at that age, the, some of the stupid things we would do. But uh, when we would get chastened, it didn't seem joyous at the moment. But looking back, you're glad that you got corrected for that. You're glad that you got reproved for that, instructed for that. Because if not, we would have thought that was normal, acceptable, or whatever, and continued on, our life would have been a wreck. And so, how much more? I mean, that's the earthly parents, okay, who are imperfect at, at best. But how much more our Heavenly Father, who is perfect, and knows the end from the beginning and so forth, and knows what we have need of before we even ask Him. And it says that, Nevertheless, the end of verse 11, this is still a review. Nevertheless, afterwards it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to them which are exercised thereby. And so, to me, there is, there is a point in which we play in this. There's a role that we have. There's a part, and I see this in all of Christianity. You know, we say it's all the Lord, it's all grace. Well, we have to define what that means. I'm saved by grace, not by my works. I understand that, but I still have to believe in Jesus. Everybody doesn't. Therefore, everybody's not saved. I do have some part in this. And He's the Savior. And I can't take any credit for my salvation. Same for sanctification. Same for the correction of the Lord. He knows how to chasten us. He does it out of love. He does it for our profit. He does it in His infinite wisdom. Knowing just what's needed, He does it as often as needed. Not more, not less than is needed in our lives. Not more severe or less severe than what's needed in our lives. And my responsibility is to hear His voice. You know, harden not your hearts. My, my response is to despise not the chastening of the Lord. That's in Proverbs in the Old Testament. That's in the New Testament right here. And so I have to yield to God's working in my life. But if I'm just pl plowing ahead through life in some kind of stubborn, even as a Christian, stubborn, headstrong way, and God's trying to get my attention so He can teach me and correct me and say, hey, you're heading the wrong way. You're wrong on this. I want to make you more like my son here. And, and I'm not listening to the Lord. He's the, he's the perfect Heavenly Father, but I'm not being a very good student or a son or a child to learn. And I do think a lot of times we set ourselves back. I know I've done it before. As a believer, fully born again, baptized in the Holy Ghost, I've set myself back because of my own stubbornness. I knew good and well God was speaking to me about something. Don't do this. 
and I reasoned it away in my mind, even as a Christian, and I did it. And guess what? There was a consequence for it. Didn't end my life or something like that, but I think a lot of times we can stunt our own growth in a, in a way. But let's put it this way: we can we can prolong how long it would take for us to grow when we could be here by now when we were right here in our service to God in our Christ likeness and our maturity in the faith and our understanding of his word and our love and our faith and the patience and all these things I could be here and I'm here and he's perfectly able to do what he needs to do in my life but he does tell me I need to yield to to allow him to do that so this is an exhortation okay it's not a, a a down kind of thing or, or a beat down kind of thing. It's an exhortation. Don't forget the exhortation about don't despise the chastening of the Lord. Whom He loves, He chastens. So He loves you if you're being chastened by the Lord. It's proof of sonship, the Bible says, because we don't correct other people's children for the most part. We discipline our own children. It's proof that they belong to you. If I was in a, in a restaurant, we were all eating, and I saw... You know, Chris and Jenna's kids acting up real bad, which they would never do. I'm going to trust that they're going to correct their kids, and I won't. That won't be something I step into, okay? Uh, unless they were gone or something, and I had to. But you understand the point. It's proof of sonship, and so I want us to move on. And so it goes on to say, this will be new scriptures that we're looking at tonight in our study. So follow along with me, if you would, verses 12 and 13. It says, wherefore, well, let's read all the way through 15. Uh, wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. I'm going to stop right there. And basically, this is just another encouragement. You know what it's saying? It's lift up means to restore, to set in place. Lift up those feeble hands. The picture here, y'all, is the picture of a downtrodden believer. He's a believer, but he's downtrodden. <coughs> what kind of things in life, in your own walk with God, or in a believer's life in general, can make you downtrodden? Can make you weary? Can sort of get you to the point where you don't know if you're going to go on? If you somebody asks you, do you believe in Jesus? Absolutely. You believe the death, the burial, and the resurrection? You believe... The Bible is the inspired Word of God and so forth. But you're at a place in your life where you're down. You need some strength. You need some encouragement. You need some... And I thank the Lord that the Holy Spirit is our paraclete, our helper. And He can come alongside. And He does. I thank the Lord for other believers. And Christ in other believers that can exhort us and encourage us as well. A right word spoken in the right season. It can just be water to the soul. You've had it before. It could be a sermon. It could be a prayer. It could be a phone call. Uh, but also the Holy Spirit is our greatest helper of all. And the picture here is, is to lift up these feeble, that means palsied, okay? These feeble, uh, these feeble knees, okay? You can just picture somebody, their, their knees are given out on them like a boxer that's been punched and the first thing you might notice is there. Their knees are getting a little wobbly and they're about to go down. And the exhortation is, wherefore lift up these hands, okay, which hang down. You're just hang, hanging down, okay, the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet. And so it's an exhortation to get our eyes back on the Lord, okay. Let the weary Christian come to Christ. That's what he's saying. Let the weary Christian come to Christ because he is going to be the one that strengthens you. And we know that the Scriptures, He never puts on us more than we can bear. He, His grace is sufficient for us. There won't be anything you walk through in your Christian life where the Lord Jesus is not sufficient for you. And for that moment, and for that trial, and for that weariness, or whatever it may be. And so the Lord is able to do that. And, and we need to come to Him. And so the exhortation is to come to the Lord. I wanted to read... Um, a little bit from this book that I'm studying. Specifically, it's a, it's a pretty decent little sized paragraph that one man of God wrote. And he says, A weary traveler, tired of the road and the buffeting of the tempest, 
stands dispirited and limp, with shoulders bowed, hands hanging slack, knees bent and shaking, he's ready to give up and sink to the ground. Such can God's pilgrim become. But one comes to him confident of the Lord in the Lord, with kindly smile and firm voice, and says, Cheer up, stand erect, brace your limbs, take heart of grace. You have already come far. Throw not away your former toils. A noble home is at the end of the journey. See yonder is the direct road to it. Keep straight on. Seek from the great physician healing for your lameness. Your forerunner went this same hard road to the palace of God. Others before you have won through. Others are on the way. You are not alone. Only press on, and you too shall reach the goal and win the prize. And so that's an exhortation. And I don't know, I think that might be from Pilgrim's Progress. I'm not positive. But um, the exhortation is you come along a person and they're on this journey between here and heaven. They're on this journey through life. They've given their life to Christ, but at some point in the road, they're weary. It seems like they're not going to make it. And all those thoughts start going through their mind. I'm not going to make it. I'm not going to make it. Life's getting too hard. Uh, the persecution, the, the trials, the, the disappointments in life. It's just getting to be too much. And so here comes this other believer and says, cheer up. Look, there, there it is. See it right there? You're not that far away. Don't, for, don't throw away everything you've already come through. Look back and see how far you've gone. Your forerunner, the Lord, He's already passed through this way. He was perfected through suffering, the Bible says. And He's gone before you. And there's other wonderful men and women of God like we read about in Hebrews 11. They've gone before you. And others are on the road right now. So cheer up. You're going to make it. Don't throw it away. And y'all, that's like a breath of fresh air. That's like a cool drink when you're weary and dried out, so to speak. And he says, come to the great physician, he says, and be healed of your lameness. And so that's who we need to turn to. We come to the Lord. And so that to me is one of the reasons. I know we use this verse a lot, but in Hebrews 10 where it says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhort one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. We need to do it more, not less. We don't come to a point where we need all this stuff that we're doing right now tonight less. We, we find that we're going to need it more and more. Because the hour in which we live, in the nearness of the Lord's coming in the rapture, the, the characteristic of the age, and it's going to become so that we're more and more detached from the world. We're not going to find any strength or any comfort or any hope or any fulfillment in the world. That's going to become less and less. We're going to only find our satisfaction and fulfillment in Christ. That is by design, okay? Because there's a rest we're going to have when we see the Lord. But therefore, this is needed more and more. This is needed more and more. And so I need it and you need it. We're going to find that we need the Lord more and more and the people of God and the exhortation of the Lord. Amen? And so this is a great exhortation. So let's, let's keep reading. It says in verse 14, Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord, looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. And so when, when it's talking about here about following after Peace and holiness. Following after peace and holiness. These are not things that... This is not a plan of salvation. He is not here saying, here's how you get saved. You follow hard after personal holiness and after peace. We know very clear, clearly from the Bible, salvation is of the Lord. He's speaking to believers. This epistle was written to believers who were getting discouraged and fearful and downtrodden and confused and wondering if they should go back and is it worth it? Okay, so this is not a plan of salvation. Follow after peace and holiness. This is an exhortation for believers. And the word follow there means to run swiftly in order to catch something. Okay, it's not a lackadaisical, we're just following, we're going on a long journey, kind of through the woods and just just sort of meandering and making your way through. This is not, and there are times for that, but that's not what this is. When it says follow after peace 
and, and holiness. In peace with all men and holiness, it means to chase, to pursue, not a casual following. Run in order to catch it. Okay? To catch it. And so peace, I think we understand peace with all men. The Bible says in Romans 12, as much as is possible, as much as it lies within you, live at peace with all men. That's even your enemies. That's even strangers, enemies, your brothers and sisters in Christ, family, friends, acquaintances, as much as is possible. Okay, you on your part, blessed are the peacemakers, says in the, in the Beatitudes, as much as is possible, live at peace with all men. We don't need to just go stir up trouble with our neighbors for no reason. Even if they're lost, even if they kind of ridicule and roll their eyes, we talk to them about Jesus or whatever it is. We need to live at peace, live at peace with all men as much as is possible. Okay? But following after holiness as well. Now this holiness is not... There's two types of holiness. We're going to do a study on this probably pretty soon. And so I'm just going to maybe in a couple of minutes cover it tonight. We're going to do a study on it because I think it's important. I think it's very important. But holiness means sanctification or consecration, which is a separation. It's two definitions. There's a moral purity like God is holy. Okay? Morally pure and blameless. You couldn't say that about any other person, especially outside of Christ, okay? You can say it about the Lord. He's holy. And, and it also has the definition of being separated unto, okay? Or a sanctification. That's what it means. And that's the one that's being talked about here. When it's talking about following after holiness, it's, there, there's two types of holiness as well. In Christ, there is a positional holiness. And again, I know I'm telling you things you know, but... We're going to repeat it because it's important that we know it. There's a positional holiness that we have as being believers. Let's say Madeline. Madeline just gave her life to the Lord five minutes ago. Okay? She has a standing in Christ that's just as much as, as Sherry's or Jean's or mine or Chris or Maria's or Alberto's that's been saved for a long time. Her position in Christ is on equal footing. We're on the cross. We're robed in the righteousness of Christ. Even though she just gave her life to the Lord. Hasn't had any time to quit bad habits or, you know what I mean, anything like that. That's a positional holiness. It has to do with our standing in the Lord. The righteousness which you receive by faith. And God calls us holy in, in that sense. That's very real. It's not make-believe or anything like that. It's real. It's your standing in the Lord. And if we died right then after giving our lives to Christ without having time to grow or mature in the Lord or quit bad habits or become more like Jesus. If we died, we're going to go to heaven just like the, the saint that lived, sold out for Jesus for 75 years. Alright? So that's the positional holiness. That's our position in Christ. Then there's a practical holiness which has to do with your walk. Day to day, working out your salvation with fear and trembling. Okay? There's times... Even today, where I was far from holy, in my attitude, in my mindset, or my whatever, just feeling sorry for myself, getting mad at something, whatever, that wasn't holy, but my standing never changes. That's rock solid. Okay, that part never changes. You may catch me in a bad day, in a bad moment, and I'm far from Christ-like in that particular moment, but yet in my standing in the Lord has not changed. My practical holiness, that's another story. And so, when he's saying follow after holiness, I believe, and, and the, scholar, the Bible scholars that I've studied on this have, have agreed that this is speaking of a practical, will be a practical sanctification. You know what I mean by practical? Just working it out. Okay? Not in theory, but walking it out. Okay? Your kindness, the fruit of the Spirit. Not saying, not coarse jesting. You know what I'm saying? Abstaining from all appearance of evil. These kind of things. Um, this will be our practical holiness. It's a work, both are works of God's Spirit in us. But in the practical holiness, we're commanded in a lot of things to walk this out, to, to yield, to submit to the Lord. Okay? And we're going to do a study on that because I, I, just, I just think it's. Wonderful, and I think it's exciting. It's all God in all of it. And at the same time, He has placed some responsibility on the believer as well in our practical holiness. 
Bible says, for example, this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you abstain from fornication. And that's just one particular instance. But you see in that scripture what it's saying, it is God's will that I be sanctified. I'm already sanctified in my standing, but that I be sanctified in my practical walk with the Lord. It's His will, even your sanctification, that you, He's telling the believer that you abstain from something. Now, where does the power come from to do it? From the Lord. But He still tells me to do it. Okay? That's going to be our study here. And we'll probably start that pretty soon when we, when we finish Hebrews. But uh, our holiness is going to be, that practical holiness, okay, is going to be completed. There is going to come a place where it's completed. Between here, where we are right now, and the rapture, or here in the time I see the Lord face to face, I'm becoming more like Christ. That is an ongoing process. And don't ever think that it stops or you reach some point where you don't need that anymore. I'm fully like Christ. I have no more growth. You know, I'm perfected in my practical holiness. No, we're not. The Bible says when we see Him, what? We'll be like Him. For we'll see Him as He is. When we see Him, we'll be changed. That's what the Bible says. We'll be changed. And so that's something, amen, I'm very excited. I have that to look forward to because I know I'm not all that I need to be in Christ. I'm as saved as I'll ever be. I'm as, I'm as right in my righteousness because it's Christ's righteousness. All right, so we understand that. And so it's not a plan of salvation when he says, follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord looking diligently lest any man fail of the grace of God. Now I'll say this, God's grace never fails. But a man, a particular man or woman or individual person, can fail to benefit from the grace. Right? And that's what's being taught here. God's grace will never fail, but a person can fail to take advantage of it, to let grace have its work in our lives. To There's lots of lost people, y'all. And so... They're failing as long as they're continuing in their lost state and unbelief, then they are failing of the grace of God because God's grace is there for them. The Bible says that that grace and truth came through the Lord Jesus Christ. The fullness of his grace have all we received and grace for grace. And so it's most grace's most complete demonstration or picture is the Savior coming and living on this earth as a man living a sinless life, dying for sinners. And that grace is extended to every man, woman, and child on this planet. But people are failing of the grace of God when they're rejecting this gospel and rejecting their need for a Savior and rejecting Christ, right? Grace is there for them. The Bible, for example, says Noah found grace. Well, the Bible says that in Noah's day, all the flesh had corrupted itself. And the Lord saw that every man's work was only evil continually. And this is what the state of the planet of human beings. And that grace was offered. Noah found grace. He found grace in the Lord. He found salvation on the ark. Amen. And so we understand that that a man can fail of the grace of God. It's not that the Lord fails or his grace fails. It simply means to fall short of or to come behind. I fell short of it. It was there for me, but I fell short of it. And so, uh, and then it goes on to say what can happen if, if we do fail of the grace of God. And it's pretty significant. I believe that I've seen this. I don't want to be the cause of this myself, but I have seen this. Lest any man fail the grace of God, verse 15, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and there, thereby many be defiled. This, this to me is a real warning. And to me, I feel like it's become more real to me and clear to me just in recent days. And I want to just read a scripture here. You don't have to turn here. I believe this is where the, the New Testament author was getting this thought from. I know from the Lord, but it says, this is from Deuteronomy uh, 29. I'll just read it lest there should be any among you, any man or woman or family or tribe whose heart turneth away this day from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of these nations. 
lest there should be any among you, in any among you, a root that beareth gall and wormwood. Okay? Uh, gall, I don't know a whole lot about it, but these would be bitter tasting things. Y'all know what something bitter is when you're eating pecans and you get a little bit of the, uh, the in-between piece. I mean, pecans, I love them. They taste great. But when you get that little piece that shouldn't be in there, and it's bitter. It's not a good taste. It's not a good feeling in your mouth. Well, picture that among the people of God. So let's say we're not just talking about a lost person. Obviously, they have come short of the grace of God. It's still there for them. They still could be saved. God's grace is still there for them. Okay? But a believer can also come short of God's grace in some area of their life where God wanted to deal with them about something and bring them to a place of repentance and they'd be forgiven and cleansed and back on their feet and brushed off and set back on the road and go get them. And the Lord wants to do that in our lives and yet maybe we're too prideful to admit that we were wrong in something. And what can happen if that is not dealt with there can spring up a root of bitterness. And this is a warning against that. And anywhere along this, even if it's a long time, there's still, okay, God, forgive me. I was wrong. I was stubborn. I was prideful. And He'll forgive and cleanse. And it doesn't have to be a, a root of bitterness. It doesn't have to defile many other people. But it, it could happen where we persist in our, our stubbornness. And we fail of the grace of God. We didn't come and let God's grace deal with us as a child. Remember the scriptures we just read before. When he loves, he chastens. So here's a person maybe that's being chastened of the Lord. And in that chastening, there's grace, right? Every grace all mixed in all of it. It's all grace in there. And God's chastening us and dealing with us. But we say, I don't, I don't want that. I think they're wrong. I think they should pay and so forth. And, and what happens is we're, we're failing in that instance. We're failing of the grace of God. God's grace didn't fail. It's still there for me tomorrow or in five minutes if I wise up and repent. OK, it's still there for me. But then, then it says that by that many can be defiled. All right. Can be defiled. That means to taint or contaminate. Let me just ask you this. Have you ever seen that? Have you ever seen somebody who was bitter and it affected the people around them? All of a sudden the family starts to split or the church starts to split and, and it's, you can be traced back to one thing. You know, it can be traced back to one person maybe. And I don't certainly want to be the cause of that. I'm not saying I never could be. I don't want to be the cause of that. Because many other people can be defiled by that. And it can, it can start uh, souring them, so to speak, to the Lord or to other people. Maybe you've got an enemy. And so you are so bitter and don't get that right that you sour other people to them. And now you've made other people hate this person over here. That's not of the Lord, I can promise you. It's not of the Lord. The Bible says it's the, it's the Lord's glory. It's a glory of a person to like cover over transgression and, and so forth. Like a, so for like a personal offense. I'm not talking about a doctrinal error or something that's going to affect me. I'm talking about where you've been wounded personally and instead of broadcasting that, forgive them, okay, and cover it up and go on and lo love them and love Jesus and keep walking with the Lord. Because if not... That bitterness can can affect other people. I've seen it happen, and it's it's serious. And the, and the exhortation here is not to let that happen. So I want to keep going just a little bit further. Let's look at these next couple of verses because it ties into that. This is the same sentence, sixteen and seventeen. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. For you know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place of, of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. Now I wanted to take just a few minutes and read some of this, and we'll probably close with this these couple of verses on Esau tonight. We know about Esau, right? 
But I just think it's pretty significant how when I think of Esau, just on my own, I guess, and I'm reading the actual account, these two brothers, right? Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. And they were twins. And Esau was physically came out first. He was the older one. And uh, it was coming out and Jacob was latched on his heel. His little hand was wrapped around his, his uh, brother's heel. And when, when, I, when I read this story uh, or the account of Esau, he was a hunter and he was out there doing his thing in the hunting and that's what he did. And, and uh, Jacob was a man that dwelt in tents and you know he had a different type of lifestyle and so forth. And, and when I read about what Esau did in the actual account, I can say that was pretty foolish what he did. But the Bible speaks of it a lot more harshly what he did. And I want us to look at it for just a minute to, to see what is it that Esau really did that was so bad because it calls him a fornicator right here. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person, it calls him a profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. So let's take just a minute and read it, y'all. Turn to Genesis chapter 25. You know, it's kind of like somebody that really wouldn't know. And they would say, okay, Eve ate this apple, or that's what people pictured as. They ate this fruit. What's a big deal? All this, you know, they were banned from the garden, and they had to, now they introduced death to the human race, and all this curse upon the earth and the ground, and now they got a toil for their food, and now there's pain for the woman when she bears a child, and all this, just because she ate of a fruit, what's the big deal? It's because we're not understanding it rightly. The Lord, when He says something, it's His law. It's His universe. We're His creation. We all belong to Him, even a lost person. You know? And so, what Esau did, when we understand it better, then we can see the seriousness of what He did. But let's just read uh, Genesis 25, 27-34. And the boys grew, and Esau was a cunning hunter and a man of the field. Jacob was a plain man dwelling in tents. And Isaac loved Esau because he did eat of his venison. And Rebekah loved Jacob. I'm sure they loved both their children, but I think it's a preferential term, okay? And Jacob sawed pottage, and Esau came from the field, and he was faint. And Esau said to Jacob, Feed me, I pray thee, with that same red pottage, for I am faint. Therefore was his name called Edom. And Jacob said, Sell me this day thy birthright. And Esau said, Behold, I am at a point to die. What profit shall this birthright do to me? Jacob said, Swear to me this day. And he swore unto him. And he sold his birthright unto Jacob. Jacob gave Esau bread and pottage and lentils, and he did eat and drink and rose up and went his way. Thus Esau what despised his birthright. He despised it. And so... We think, okay, what's well, a big? He was really hungry. I, honestly, this is my thinking, and, and based on the, the scriptures here, I don't think Esau was going to die. I don't think his brother was going to let him keel over dead and die right there. I think he would. He was a man that hunted and he was outdoors and all this. I don't think he was going to die that moment. He was basically like, "I'm starving, I'm starving, man. That smells good. I'm really hungry. Give me some of that." Okay, well, sell me your birthright. Swear it to me. Okay, what's the big deal? Give it to me. He eats it. He rose up, went his way. With Esau, we don't see a second thought about it. It was nothing. It was just like, uh, it was nothing at all. It was like throwing away a piece of trash to him. Okay? Where you wouldn't think twice about it. And it says, thus Esau despised his birthright. And so, uh, the Bible says that profane, that it speaks of Esau as being profane. It means uh, one who lives outside, it was a person that would live outside of the, the temple. It was a heathenish person, person, wicked, desecrated. It describes the quality of Esau's life. It describes the quality of his life when it says a profane person. It's not just something he did that was profane. It describes the quality of his life. And so, uh, in, in uh, 
he, he lived in his life, it was like the things of, the, of God were not important to him. The things of God were not interested, interesting to him or important or significant to him. And that's really the thought that's here. It's just like a person in the world. You know what I'm saying? They don't care if they cuss. They don't care if they, you know, a lot of people don't care if they, they do some horrible thing. Um, because when you bring God into the picture for them, it, it, He's not in the picture. He's just not important to them at all. And for the people of God, it ought to be. And for God's sake, it ought to be. He wants it to be. And it, mean, it says He despised it. Okay, so this to me is how we're getting into the, the significance of what Esau did with his birth, birthright. He counted it as worthless. He counted it as a small thing and insignificant. He disdained it and he, he counted it as contemptible. What he should have counted as cherished and valuable. What he should have counted as valuable. He disdained it. No spirituality at all about it. No remorse. I mean, no real serious, heartfelt remorse about it. Uh, what he should have cherished. It was, it was irreverent. And we see it today. And the Bible says he sold his birthright. The birthright represented the blessing of the Father. Today, I honestly say I don't know that it carries that weight in this culture. And in the Bible days, we see the importance of it. I was reading today, and I don't have time. It was 22, the 22 blessings, and I don't know how accurate it all is, but somebody compiled a list of the 22 blessings of the Father's birthright on a life. It was pretty significant. 22 of them they listed out. And, and so he, he sold his birthright. It had something of lasting value. The birthright it, uh, had, had value to it that was beyond just the here and now. It would have to do with him getting old and his children and then his children's children and his children's children and so forth. It had to do with uh, things way in the future. And he sold it, the Bible says, for one morsel of bread. He sold it for a temporary satisfaction. It was fleeting. That was casual. What is the difference that we see in somebody like Moses? The Bible says that uh, when he had the chance to be called the, the, the son of Pharaoh's daughter, right? He refused to be called that, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. That's such a, a huge truth that people miss. We need to instill it to our lives. We need to instill it in our children's lives that sin is fleeting. Its pleasure is for a moment. The things of God are of eternal value. And so he got a full stomach. How long does a full stomach last, y'all? <laughs> not very long. And not very long. We eat breakfast and then we are definitely hungry by lunchtime. We eat lunch and we're definitely ready to eat that night, maybe a late night snack after that. It doesn't last long. It's not intended to last long. Give us this day our daily bread, okay? We, he knows what we have need of daily, but he, he sold it for a meal, <coughs> one meal that filled up his belly, and he just went whistling Dixie down the road, happy as can be, for a little time, and his belly's full, and he never gave it a second thought until it was time to cash in on it. Until he, his eyes were open, he saw what he had given up. Okay, And uh, what happened was he gave up something that was of eternal value for, for something of temporal value. It's not a good deal. It's not a good exchange. It's not a good swap. Is not the Lord trying all through this Bible to teach us that? The importance of the eternal, the, the, while we look on the things that are eternal, not the things that are temporal. For the things that are, are, are seen are temporal. The things that are unseen are eternal. That's what the Apostle Paul, he was talking about having been beaten and, and, and all the different things that happened to his life. He said, I count those as nothing. Momentary sufferings. Minuscule. So what are you talking about minuscule? I still see the scars in your back where you were beat. He's talking about minuscule sufferings compared to compared to what's the reward that's coming. 
We have to be eternally minded. We have to be eternally minded. Because any little sin can entice us. We can jump right after it, okay? And yet, the, if we were to take a step back and see the pleasure in that is going to be for this long, like a full belly, and what I'm giving up compared to that meal, you know, we're going to be eating, eating heavenly food, for goodness sake. And he gave up his birthright for a meal, rose up, went his way, and thus Esau despised his birthright. He took what was of eternal value and he despised it. And he traded it in for a meal, for a momentary pleasure. So when you start looking at it that way, you know, we don't look, he didn't commit adultery and he didn't commit murder and he didn't go out and worship an idol and he didn't do all these things and rob his neighbor, you know, steal something from him. But the Lord says he was a profane person because of how he treated what he should have esteemed is irreverent. We see it on TV shows. We see it among people as irreverent. And what should be uh, esteemed as being holy and of the Lord and valuable because God places a value on it. And we throw it away. People, people throw it away. And so let's close with this. Back in, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 17. We're going to close with this scripture tonight. Finish off with, uh, with Esau. This thought about Esau. For ye know how that afterwards... Now, we don't have time to read it, but you know, you know the story, y'all? I'll just kind of paraphrase it. Later, he comes back, and, and uh, Isaac, their father's about to die. His eyes have grown dim. He can't see. And he says, uh, would you make me Esau? Would you make me some of that, that venison? Boy, I, my last meal would sure be good if you'd make me that. And he goes, sure, Pop. And he runs out to go hunting. And while he's gone... Rebecca said, I heard what your dad said. He's going to bless him. You better get in there. So it was a scheme. Okay, it was a scheme. This is, not, this is not excusing what Jacob did. But it still doesn't change the fact what Esau did selling his birthright. Okay? So Jacob comes in, pretends to be Esau, gives him a lamb that he killed, and he eats that. And then as soon as he leaves, here comes Esau. Got the, got the meal for you, Dad. Who are you? I'm Esau, your oldest. Who? He started trembling and shaking because he, uh, Isaac knew the significance of what he had done too. He had blessed him. He had blessed Jacob the younger. And he even told Esau, and I blessed him, son, and he is going to be blessed. There was something to that, y'all, that was significant. And so Esau goes, don't you have one little blessing left for me? Just a little blessing left for me? Still not seeing any spiritual significance of it. Still not seeing anything beyond just how he's going to miss out a little bit. Do you have anything less for, left for me, Dad? That's still all he wanted. No repentance. No uh, the weight or the severity of his actions hitting him fully and saying, I'm the problem. I'm the problem. This was wrong of me. I was wrong. There's none of that. There's like, don't you have something for me? Jacob stole my blessing and all that. And, and that may be true to an extent. But, but the point is, it says, for we know that afterwards, when he would have received the blessing, it was time for it now, he was rejected. Why? Because he had sold it. He was a profane person. This was his nature. This was his character. It wasn't only an action that he did. The Bible paints the picture of Esau. This is the kind of man he was. Okay? And there's a difference. David committed adultery and, and murder. But he's called a man after God's own heart because if you look at the entirety of his life, he was a man that pursued after the Lord. They walked with God and knew the Lord. Okay? Esau is painted the picture that we see. He was a profane person. He's a profane person. All right? He was rejected, for he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. You say, well, I don't get it. He wanted to repent. Why couldn't he repent? And basically, this to me looks like, especially when you read the account of it in the Bible in Genesis, more of a remorse and a regret. And remorse and regret is not repentance. Okay? You know that. Remorse and regret is not repentance. Godly, I mean, a worldly sorrow is not <coughs> repentance. 
I say it all the time. We see a politician, we see a famous athlete, they get caught taking steroids, they get caught in some domestic abuse, they lose their sponsorship. Nowadays, they probably gain them if, if they do those things. Um, and they come out with this written out speech that their, their you know, sport agent wrote for them and say, I'm very, yeah, da, da, da. and they read it all. And, and it's not from their heart. It's certainly not a repentance. If they sin, they sin against God. They need to deal with the Lord about it. Okay? And it's only to save face. It's only because they regret what they lost. I lost a $500 million shoe contract because I did this. So they might cry some serious tears over that. And I think that's what Esau did. He sought it carefully with tears, but still he didn't find the place of repentance because he wasn't repentant in his heart. The Bible says worldly sorrow uh, does not lead to repentance. That's remorse, a worldly sorrow. We've all experienced it. We've all seen it on TV. They're sorry they got caught. They're sorry they got to pay the consequences for it. I've met a lot of guys in prison like this. They're sorry for the ramifications of their actions. And they may cry about it, but they're not repentant. Repentance brings God into the picture. Repentance shows me that I'm the problem. I'm the problem. It's me. I didn't just do a foolish thing. There's something in me that did a foolish thing. That's got to be dealt with. I've broken God's holy law, and they're going to try to get it right with the Lord. Repentance will always bring God into the picture. With Esau, he's like, don't you have another blessing for me, Daddy? And he's just crying away. Daddy, don't you have another blessing for me? Is there any blessings left for me? No repentance. But a godly sorrow leads to repentance, not to be repented of or turned from. Once you turn in repentance, you can stay there. There's a godly sorrow. It's a good thing. And I'll just close with that thought because I think sometimes, y'all, even in, in church and as Christians, we can try to cheer people up too quickly when God's not through dealing with them. You know what I'm saying? If I'm down here and I've done some horrible thing and maybe you don't even know about it, and I'm down here bawling my eyes out to the Lord and He's dealing with my heart, let me bawl my eyes out and let the Lord deal with me. Don't say, oh, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Let's get up. And, you know, it might be the time that, that I need to be dealt with or it's godly sorrow and it had, maybe I haven't even fully repented yet. Maybe God's just dealing with my heart. Maybe it's going to take two weeks where He's dealing with my heart and I'm heavy. And it's the Lord through godly sorrow, godly sorrow, okay, bringing me to a place of repentance. And when I repent there, that's going to be lasting. You see, we don't want to cheer up, buckaroo. You don't want to get people all, uh, everything's just wonderful. Go play some happy music. No, maybe God's dealing with somebody. Esau never got there. But there is a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. Godly sorrow is not repentance either. It leads to repentance. Okay? And so that, that scripture is in 2 Corinthians 7, if you want to do a little study on that, about godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. But I just want to close with that. And I, and I just pray that it was a, uh, it helps me to study this stuff to see, okay, what was so bad about what Esau did? And then when he, why, why couldn't he just ask and be forgiven like everybody else? Because he didn't repent. Jesus said, unless you repent, you're going to perish. Okay, there has to be repentance. And worldly sorrow and remorse and regret is not repentance. Godly sorrow is a good thing and it leads to repentance. Amen? And so, I'm going to close with that. And so, we're going to just going to open up the, the altar now and, and just have a time of prayer. If the Lord's dealing with you about some sin in your life, if the Lord's dealing with, uh, and you feel the need that you need to share it with somebody, and God leads you to do it, be wise in who you share it with and how you share it. But if the Lord's leading you to, do it. If it's just you and the Lord and you just need to get along with God, then do it. Maybe you're praying for someone else. Maybe you've got some bitterness in your heart because of somebody that's hurt you and it's a legitimate hurt, but the bitterness is not legitimate. Okay? The bitterness is never legitimate because we need to forgive and forgive them and love them and go on and let God get all that out of our lives. A root. When a root gets hold, it can, can really get, get hold. Okay? So it might be something like that. It might be that you're uh, rebelling against the chastening of the Lord. Where God's dealing with your life and He's put His finger on something in your life and you still haven't 
brought it to the Lord. You haven't said, okay, God, take it. Could be a friend, could be whatever in the Lord's dealing with you about it. But Lord, we just come before you tonight. Let's take a few minutes before we leave. This is our first time to gather in the new year. And Lord, this is your night. This is your time and we're your people. And God, we want to take the time, whether it's a little time or however much time, to allow you to deal with our hearts. We don't want to assume that we're just perfect in our walk with you and that we have no need of reproof or correction or instruction or repentance or forgiveness or growth. Because Lord, we do. Lord, I don't want to despise the spiritual things and the things of eternal value and trade them in for some momentary pleasure. I've done that before in my life. But I don't want to live that way, God. I don't want to despise what I should cherish. And I don't want to pretend like I've repented when it's just a regret or remorse. The goodness of God leads us to repentance. And Lord, I pray you'd work in our lives. If it were the case may be in all of our lives, a godly sorrow that would lead us to repentance. And Lord, we would yield quickly, God, to our loving Father when you chasten us. We would yield. We might not understand it. It's not pleasurable at the moment that we're being chastened. But you're doing it for our profit that we might be partakers of your holiness, God. Help us as a people to follow after peace with all men and holiness, God. Help us to take the scriptures that we've heard tonight and let your living word, like David said, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee, God. To let your word have its work in us. Not to be forgetful hearers, but doers of the word, God. I pray your blessings upon us and he's here tonight. And upon this church, God, give us soft hearts and tender hearts that are quick to say yes to you, Lord. Quick to, to when you smite our hearts and convict us, let, it be, let us be so quick to say, it's me, Lord, I'm guilty of that. It's not someone else and it's not someone else's fault. It's me, Lord. And then, Lord, we bring it to the foot of the cross. We're washed in the blood of Jesus. And we're restored. And we want to lift up those hands that hang down, those feeble knees, God. And we want to make our path straight, not crooked, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, God.